Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. Given the polarity that we exist in right now, I can't imagine any news organization that would be seen as a straight down the middle, just given how sharp everyone's opinions are. Because like people as a whole are getting more polarized, I believe. And certainly we are hearing that from lawmakers. Redistricting is so tough because there are a trillion reasons you could draw a line. I don't know that I ever got a fully square explanation from anyone on why the maps are drawn. Coincidentally, their best, fairest map is pretty favorable to their side. All right, everyone. Uh, today we are very, very excited because we have our first guest who comes from the space of journalism. Today, we've got Dirk Vanderhart. If you listen to public radio, you know Dirk's voice, if not his name. Um, he's one of the most prominent Oregon political journalists. And he's actually got a very interesting story about how he arrived in Oregon and joined OPB. He previously was at the Portland Mercury before that and several other news outlets across the Midwest, actually across the country before he landed in Oregon. And it was a great conversation. Titus, what were your main takeaways? What did you appreciate the most? So back to that podcast thing, before I actually met J.D. Vance in person, I listened to Hillbilly Elegy on Audible and you heard his voice. And then you hear the guy talking in person. You're like, it's the voice, but with the face. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought of Dirk because I, I listened to the podcast. No, it was a really fun conversation because we cover everything from what I would say are really big topics like the downfall of local journalism, the place of OPB and other local outlets within, you know, reviving civic culture and things like that, all the way to sort of the nitty gritty politics, what the insiders are hearing about redistricting, the new maps and all of that fun stuff. And Dirk clearly really knows what he's talking about too, and is well sourced and has interesting perspectives. So I think it'll be a good episode that everybody will enjoy, both for kind of the big ideas of what you're used to on the Oregon Bridge, but also the nitty gritty insider baseball of some of the hottest political issues that are pressing right now. For sure. He, if not, I don't know if he has ridden the most, but definitely among the most of any journalists on the issue of redistricting in Oregon. We joke on the podcast, like he's written dozens of articles that have kind of kept people abreast throughout the long extended, well, short term, but many big events in a short period of time for the Oregon redistricting process. And he also spent much of the week in the courthouse listening to the oral arguments of folks on both sides of the redistricting debate. So he's got a very, very valuable perspective and shares some things that I definitely was not aware of until we spoke to him. So love that part of the conversation. And also, I think we want to be intentional about talking about journalism and the impact of the decline of local journalism. And Dirk's got an awesome perspective there that I think will be valuable for our listeners as well. So with that, Titus, anything to add? Nope. I think we'll dive right in. All right, let's go straight to the episode. Thanks, everyone. All right, and with that, we would like to welcome today's guest, OPB political reporter, Dirk Vanderhart. Dirk, how are you doing? Hey, I'm great. It's late Friday afternoon, so there are worse times. <laughs> that is true. We made it through the week. So we wanted to start a little bit. You are our first journalist guest on the podcast, so uh, we're excited to talk to you a little bit about journalism, about politics, but we wanted to start with your identity as an Oregonian, if you consider yourself hmm. one. We were looking at your um, your work history, and you've worked in a lot of different states, mostly for it looks like media journalism. But what brought you to Oregon? Do you consider yourself here to stay? And then how did you end up at OPB, your ultimate job? So give us a little bit of your, sure. your travels. Yeah, so I am uh, originally from Michigan, grew up in Grand Rapids, and spent the 
bulk of, actually, I guess about half of my life there. I went to Michigan State for journalism, go Spartans. Worked, you're right, I worked in a number of places. I, I worked, uh, had internships in DC, Ohio. Out of college, I got a, my first newspaper job at a newspaper in Springfield, Missouri, which is third largest city in the state, Southwest Missouri, just like a hop, skip and a jump from Branson. If you're familiar with the circus-like atmosphere that is Branson, Missouri, uh, <laughs> if not get familiar with it. Um, <laughs> And yeah, I was there uh, two years. I was covering the courts and the justice system and made maybe not the most well-advised move. I decided at some point in 2009, I think, that I did not want to live in Missouri. Uh, <laughs> it, it wasn't you know, where I was from. It wasn't, I, I made the, the decision that it wasn't for me. So quit my newspaper job at a time when uh, newspapers were shedding jobs rapidly. And certainly there wasn't a lot of opportunity and I had a lot of friends uh, out in Portland. I had a number of friends from growing up that had moved out here. I had visited and enjoyed it. So sort of a cliche, I guess, like <laughs> drop your job, move to Portland, ride your bike a lot. I mean, as much as I hate to simplify it like that, that was sort of my story. Got here in 2009 and, you know, it was, as I suggested, not a lot of newspaper jobs. The Oregonian was like at stasis or laying people off, whatever. You, you guys are probably familiar with some of the the trends. And I ended up freelancing for the Oregonian for a while, kind of just working around town. I actually was a, a karaoke jockey for a while, no kidding. while okay. which was actually a really awesome job and kind of an amazing diversion. And then ended up in, what was it? 2013, getting a full-time job for the Portland Mercury, where I covered city matters, poverty, wound up taking the news editor spot there in 2015. And then in 2018, got a job at OPB covering state politics, which brings us to the present, essentially. So I know Titus wants to ask a, a question about like media landscape. But before that, I'm curious, I think of OPB, Titus might disagree, but I think of OPB as like very unbiased, like very careful about how you present information, how you present side. Whereas I feel yeah. like the Mercury, in, sure. even in their reporting, it feels more comfortable editorializing sometimes. Yeah. Um, did you have to change your style when you've moved or did you basically, were you kind of the same Dirk that you were at Mercury when you got to OPB? Yeah, it, it's a good question. Um, I, I would say that like in any alt weekly, right, which is what the Mercury is, what Willamette Week is, you know, there is that editorial voice that you can have. You, you can essentially choose your own adventure at places like this. And, and certainly the Mercury, probably most people would think of it as having a more liberal tilt. I would say, and, and what I told OPB, in fact, as I was interviewing for this job was like, I think if you look at my work at the Mercury, even the column I ran, like I would say that I was fair in almost every instance and certainly tried to play down the middle. That doesn't mean I did have a column. I certainly swore more in my copy <laughs> <laughs> at the Mercury. Um, but like, I don't think there's any like super partisan hack job that you could point to that I did there. It was down the road journalism, like trying to, satisfy a public service and inform people and unearth things. So like, I, I would say the missions are similar, but you're absolutely correct that the vibe of those two places can be different if that's how you choose to pursue it. Mm -hmm. And, and to, to answer your other question, like I've been in Oregon, like I said, since uh, 2009, um, my wife is from here. I met her out here. I don't see myself leaving. I, I don't, I, I'm not sure I consider myself an Oregonian though. That's tough. Cause I, cause I still, cause I still really like hold the Midwest heritage deer. So I mean, I, you, you you have the beanie, you got the beard. <laughs> there's the Portland picture in the background. I, I, I you're, you're, you're becoming a convert, Dirk. If you're, 
Yeah. Maybe the yeah. full come to Jesus moment hasn't happened yet, but we're, we're close. <laughs> <laughs> it's fair. That's a fair point. Cool. I, I want to actually take kind of a, a step back. So, I mean, you've worked for a number of different publications, uh, you know, across the country. You worked in Missouri, as I also worked for the Houston Chronicle. Kind of describe for us both your journey, but also what does the journey of journalism look like as you've kind of moved on, right? So, like, I imagine that the first job you had, just in terms of literally the technology the software that you're using, maybe the types of stories that you write, maybe the stories you even pursue has changed dramatically kind of over that time span. Could you kind of walk us through that journey of what does that look like? And maybe I'll joke that like, maybe your first job you started, I don't know, maybe your stories were like pen and paper or something or like no. just using computer. <laughs> There's no Twitter. But yeah, kind of like, like, what did that journey for you look like? And kind of what are the most dramatic changes that you've seen from then to now? Well, just to be frank with you, it's probably not quite as stark as you're envisioning, right? So like mm. I, my first newspaper job was 2007. From the gate there, they gave me a laptop and that was my machine. And that, and that is still very much the model of newsrooms today, even OPB. They give you a laptop, like that is your primary work machine and you're going off. I think Twitter started in 2007. So I guess when I was in college, right, we all had desktops and we were sort of mired and married to that place. And that has certainly gone away. In terms of technology though, I, I do not think it's gonna be that satisfying of an answer. Like hmm. the iPhone obviously has done some dramatic things as has the evolution of Twitter in terms of like going out on for Portland protests and like the bulk of your coverage being um, live tweeting it and just embedding tweets into a story or having that inform your newsroom or that sort of live coverage. We do that a lot. Obviously in radio journalism, which I made the switch to, I've got a lot of microphones and weird thingamajigs that I didn't use before. But like, I have never been just, you know, I graduated from college in 2005. I have never been the journalist that takes notes longhand. I'm really bad at taking notes longhand. Like if you see me in the Capitol or something, I'm often going to want to come to someone's office with my laptop and just, and take notes on that. So, you know, I, I just don't think like, God, I'm probably missing something really big. I mean, clearly like digital and the way the digital um, landscape has shaped journalism has changed a great, great deal from daily newspaper deadlines to a let's rush and get it up and can we beat someone with a good report and like the iterative sort of journalism that we do today right where it's like if there's a breaking story we want to get it up online and then we're going to keep pushing it pushing it as we can that was called a write through back in the day it still is we do that in a different form but it's very much the same thing I know I'm going to kick myself Alex when we get out of this and I'm like no this huge thing has changed and what am I talking about <sighs> I guess well, it just really does. Yeah, I so, don't know. So I think the one to shift Alex's question a little bit, the one side that you've already alluded to changing significantly is the business side of the industry. Right. And mm -hmm. I think like, so part of, you mentioned like jobs were sort of declining. There's the a very famous Columbia Journalism Review article about Oregon State House reporters where it's mm, like, right. I think it peaked at 40 or 50 and then it just declined for 20 years. And I feel like, and this is part of my my next question for you, is it feels to me like, I'm sure you've seen Oregon Capital Chronicle is a new yep. publication on the scene. Um, I think they've got three reporters plus their editor-in-chief. So it feels like that dip is maybe coming back up. Maybe there's, it also feels like, I can't remember which Oregonian reporter, but one Oregonian reporter tweeted about how basically since they moved to a paywall, there haven't had been any layoffs at the Oregonian. So it seems like we might be turning a corner but I, I'm curious, like, given the trends that you've lived through in terms of just massive shedding of staff, are you 
optimistic about the future of local journalism, pessimistic about the future of local journalism? How do you feel? Oof. Um, just full disclosure, you sent me the fact that you might be asking about this before the, <laughs> before the podcast. And I thought about it and I'm like, do I want to say I'm pessimistic? I mean, so it's really, really hard to be optimistic right now when you look at just what the trends have been with how the digital landscape has changed the business model. Advertising is, is way, way down with this trend of these big vulture capital funds buying up newspapers left and right and sort of systematically gutting them and that sort of being this unstoppable force. So like my, where I started was newspapers and, and it's just so, so hard. And now COVID like has further decimated the landscape and made things hard. It's really hard to be optimistic about that facet right yeah. now. I would say the beauty of where I am right now is Oregon Public Broadcasting has a really amazing base of support from its donors. People really support the service we do. We feel that in so many ways, not just financial, but in the back and forth with listeners, just the, the feedback. So that has been really gratifying working here in a place that feels like it's on some stable footing. And I think like no one knows what the hope is, right? Like there are people that would theorize that there needs to be far more public dollars in journalism, that there needs to be a federal government subsidy that helps prop this up. And they would argue there's a constitutional nexus for that and what the framers were trying to do. And then there's all these nonprofit models that are springing up. And can we find the kinds of donors that public radio has been able to make happen? And I think there's could be some really exciting shifts there. We, we are seeing it tentatively. But yeah, I mean, just in terms of like the thing that I, I sort of loved in journalism school, like newspapers being this sort of flagship and great two newspaper towns where reporters are slugging it out for scoops and like all this really <laughs> great stuff that was in like the heyday. It's super, super hard to be optimistic about that. I also, you know, whenever you talk to someone about this, they will say, but stories are always going to need to be there and reporting is always going to need to be the right. And that, that is such a cliche. And it is one that I have more and more just, kind of found myself answering like, no, like not necessarily. I mean, this stuff could go black. And there are studies that suggest that that is very, very bad for localities. I'm sure you guys have read or heard about this. Like, yes. Corruption goes up. Democratic participation goes down. Right. Um, interestingly, this is what I just saw. Someone tweeted about this. If you poll just average people, they actually think local journalism is doing fine. <laughs> they, they don't like perceive a problem. And I think that sense of, oh, somebody's covering this stuff. Somebody's right. writing about this is like part of what complicates the problem you've outlined. If people don't sense a problem, there's no sort of stimulus to fix it. The cynical part of me also thinks that like when there was a daily newspaper and everyone got it, like that was great. We didn't have web metrics. I don't know. I would be so curious how many of the stories that were just the bread and butter of daily papers actually got read or, or looked at. And now we have that super, super deep down and we know where people are looking and not. And it's just, it's fascinating to me what some of the suppositions were in a more naive, less digital time. Well, and and so Dirk, you hit on this a little bit more, but I want to dive a little bit more into it in terms of the yep. different business models with subscribers, or I know some newspapers are even getting fancy and you can like literally click to pay 50 cents just to read this article or whatever, right? right. So that more people are moving behind a paywall that doesn't seem to be going away. That's probably just going to keep increasing over time. So you have that sort of, the market is sort of maturing there. Then you also have the OPP model, which is the nonprofit side of things. Uh, and you have donors. I mean, I imagine you guys also make some money, but probably not enough to actually pay for the operational costs. I'm sort of curious, and I don't want to put you on the spot too much to bash one paper or the other, but one thing that I think that the new, and I've talked about this a bunch, this wouldn't be surprising to any of our listeners, that the subscriber model does is 
you're so incentivized to talk to that specific group of subscribers that I think it can really make for not only more biased reporting, but also just like the types of stories people cover, right? So, I mean, for example, I imagine if you looked at the average New York Times subscriber, they're probably upper middle class, probably white, and probably more left or liberal to, to the spectrum, right? Like when their reporting is happening, I'm not saying this is happening in all cases, right? But like they do have to cater to that specific audience because that's what their subscribers, right? Like those are literally the people who pay the bills. Whereas I feel like with, at least as you were literally just talking about with the metrics is that you could write a devastating story, maybe not devastating, but like, what if there's some major sort of corruption scandal and like you write about this, but no one cares because, oh, Dirk's story only got 200 clicks. So like advertisers are like 200 clicks. No one cares about that. Like that's making like pennies on the dollar. I'm sort of curious just kind of of your general thoughts on that is like, it seems like, I'm not saying that subscriber-based publications don't have good scoops and don't expose corruption or scandals and things like that. But like, I feel like that the, the sort of incentive model has shifted uh, because of that. I'd just be kind of curious of your response because you've obviously I, worked for both for-profit and nonprofit at this point. Yeah, so to the extent, I mean, I just like, so we have a donor base, right? So we, we I guess in in the theory that you are positing, like we would be, we would be thinking a lot about OPB's donors and and ta like tailoring our coverage to that. And I can just like, there is literally not anything that I encounter on a daily basis that is, you know, whatever. Like, Daddy what? Warbucks gave us fifty thousand dollars last year, and he like like there. I I could just like it's it. I believe it's probably tempting for people to see it like that. Oh, oh no, sorry, sorry. To, to clarify, I was saying actually nonprofit, I think, especially from small dog, give more independence yeah. compared to like the like the paid for profit subscriber bases. Okay. Well, so I just just to continue the point, like, um, or the, I maybe the New York Times is like that. I don't know if they feel like they need to satisfy the upper east side wasps or they just feel like they're putting forward public service journalism. I mean, what I can say is this, like, there is a definite, definite difference between commercial and what we do at OPB. And it's not what you think. I will not be the person to moralize like OPB has this higher minded public service because I've come from these newsrooms and I truly feel like the people that work in these newsrooms all have the same basic true north, which is unearthing corruption, if that be the case, but also trying to ensure there's an informed electorate because that is very much a basis of our country. And just keeping people generally informed and acting as a watchdog. Like the Oregonian does that. Any newsroom worth its salt is trying to do that if it's really about the job. But you're not wrong that the commercial, the business pressures are very, very different. And the metrics chart beat, if you guys are familiar with it, is a very real deal, which is like this service you subscribe to that will show, for instance, each of your articles and how they're doing and who's looking at your, how many people are looking at your story in real time or your site in real time. There are websites that have chart beat on big monitors. And that is very much the, oh, like this is driving the news, right? One of the things that I really appreciate about OPB is that we, that is not where we are. We don't have to do that because of the stability of the model. So we are really able, I think, to more purely pursue things that we think are in the public interest or interesting or worthwhile. And that doesn't mean we're not trying to pursue things that are really gonna get a lot of clicks or that people are interested, but it is, it is not a overriding force. I'm still not sure I'm answering your question, Alex. So if I'm not, please feel free to like guide me in the right direction. I don't think there's a right answer to it one way or another, right? I mean, it's right. that, that's totally just kind of my opinion on on what's happening. But actually, even, even to kind of build off of that, 
one thing that I wanted to ask you about and, you know, sort of the theme of our podcast, right, is that national politics is overtaking everything at this point. And Oregon is such a prime example of this, like more so than I think Idaho or Wyoming or Vermont or whatever is like people just tend to pay attention to Oregon more across the country than I think that they do with many other states, partially because of things that are happening in Portland, partially because of things that are happening in rural Oregon. And one thing that I'm curious, kind of from your perspective is, and this is my opinion, right? So obviously I'll, you know, I'm not saying this, this is right and you have to agree with me. Sure. Is that yeah. when a publication like the New York Times, or I mean, you could even say Fox News too, like we'll just at both sides of the aisle. When they're writing something about what's going on in Portland, for example, I feel like that the articles that are always coming out are much more biased towards one way or another. They're much more clicky destroying downtown Portland or like whatever compared to the sort of reporting that you guys do on these issues, which again, I don't want to call it like toned down as in terms of that it's boring or it's squishy or something like that. I just feel like it's actual, it's, it's more hard news than it is editorialized. I'm kind of getting to a point that Ben said earlier is like, oh, well, Titus might not think that OPB is biased. I can think that one way or another, but I think that local journalism in general is just a lot less biased than when national publications start reporting on local issues. I'm kind of curious if your general thoughts just on that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that is same as it ever was, just to be frank with you. Like, it is well known that when national reporters dive in, like not always and not all national reporters, but like a feeding frenzy, such as we saw, for instance, last summer in Portland with the federal courthouse and all that stuff. It is nothing new that folks come in from out of town and don't have the nuance, maybe don't really try to get the nuance, or maybe to your point are having this more, I mean, they want to have a more simplistic frame. Like I can't tell you how many times I've talked to national producers from one station or or another that really want to assert this frame and wonder if if like I can speak to this and and I'm not comfortable with it, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's very easy, I think, especially from like a national talk show perspective, here's the problem with Portland or here's this pivot that we want to explore. And it's not always that simple. So, you know, I'm not even sure I fault them for it. I think part of it is just the way that that dynamic works. You're coming in from out of town. You're not, you're thrust into something and you are trying to figure out what the story is and present it. Now that's not to say that people don't use that and do that to their own ends and with their own slants. I mean, I clearly, clearly that happens and probably more all the time with the media landscape that it is. But I guess I don't think it's new. I agree with you that Oregon has had its share of really notable national stuff. And I'm not sure if that's like endemic to Oregon. Hmm. Maybe it is. Or if it's just like we've had, we've been on a run, right? With like Mal here and Portland <laughs> and, and all this other stuff that's going on. It really does. Even yeah. like the walkouts, yeah. there's just been a lot of interesting things that have happened. Maybe. Yeah. That's- I mean, for example, like I, if someone would have told me two months ago that the Newburgh school board would be on like the front page of major publications. I'd right. be like, no one knows where Newburgh, Oregon is. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, like... but that is, that is a whole other thing too. That is, I mean, that, that has a whole other thing to do with national media, right? Which is like, it focuses people on these issues all around the country and they take root and catch fire. 
like the, the CR, I mean, like these school board things, right? Critical race theory is this huge flashpoint, even though like critical race theory is very loosely defined in many people's minds. And like what yes. you would actually call critical race theory, which is this like high level university thing is not what people are talking about. It's just not that, but it has become a shorthand for a larger set of ideas that people are concerned with. And that wouldn't just be organically happening, right? Without like it being the focus of national media, which is the other issue with like national stuff is it, it just, it focuses, it's more and more, as newspapers go away, like we're talking about as local news goes away, like people become, I think, more centered on this national conversation. And so it makes its way out, right? Well, and there's, I mean, the other side, this is a fascinating conversation. I'm really enjoying listening to it. There's also a question for me about like, is the tail wagging the dog or whatever the expression is? Because yes, national media is focusing on this, but there's this new, there's the New Yorker article about what's the name of the guy who basically he's like openly saying, I created the critical race theory controversy as a tactic for conservative organizing. So like part of it is the national media is responding to when, you know, a group of people go to shut down a school board meeting, holding CRT signs, that's newsworthy. (laughs) Like we need to report on that, but the media landscape, I do think there's sensationalism that's real. But they're also responding to the fact that the local political landscape is actually kind of bonkers right now in terms of, we can look at the Portland school board meeting from last month, literally shut down because unmasked protesters come in, sit in a circle, give speeches about how literally the kids are going to die from the vaccine. Well, that was like this week, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like, I do think there's a couple things happening. One, sensationalism in media is real. And to tie this to your point, I was thinking when you're talking, I do think it is true that like progressive or liberal readers self-select New York Times as their national publication and conservatives probably go to Fox News or Wall Street Journal or whatever. Mm -hmm. I actually don't think this might be one place where I think Oregon and maybe even state media more generally is insulated. Like, I don't actually think the Oregon Catalyst is obviously a conservative publication, but like when you look at Statesman Journal, Register Guard, Oregonian, Willamette Week, OPB, I don't think there's a clear, like, progressives would say the Oregonian veers conservative. Conservatives would say that Willamette Week veers liberal. But I don't think there's like a, like, oh, I don't read Willamette Week because, like, conservatives love to read Willamette Week and the good, the bad, and the awful and all that stuff. So I and kind of feel like the national stuff hasn't penetrated the Oregon media landscape, but I don't know if, if you agree with that. I mean, I don't know if that question is to me. I think historically, right, back in the day, the Oregonian was like pretty conservative editorial board and that's what it was known for. I don't know that you could call it that now. I mean, I think that in the sort of, I don't know if it's a function of a more degraded media landscape or not, I would agree. Like, I think by and large, you're not seeing papers on the level of Eugene or Salem have the editorial heft where people are like, oh, this is this beacon of liberal or conservative (laughs) principles right i mean but but we do have like as you mentioned there used to be blue oregon i guess that's gone but that was like a a progressive or democratic blog and there's the catalyst and then mike nearman has the northwest observer (laughs) i think so like there are a, a variety of areas expressing some of these opinions i would even say to that ben let's even say i thought opb was far to the left let's just say i thought that i still think that no matter what they would still write a more fair story than a national publication would if I was trying to have it have like no bent or whatever. And that's why I think these conversations about local news are so, and I've worked with local reporters from 13 different states now, because when I was traveling around the country with the vice president, we went all over the place, Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Iowa. I mean, we went all over the place. I always actually felt that when I was working with local journalists, that for the most part, 
They were always just trying to basically report on what the story was. Uh, and maybe there was some sort of spin. Sometimes there was even conservative spin. I met a lot of like local journalists working at publications who like, you could clearly tell they were big fans of Donald Trump. But I feel like no matter who, it was always just literally more about the news and less about the noise. And I just feel that part of the issue, I mean, as we've talked about so many times on the podcast, is that as local media just continues to die, I think that the business model will become more sustainable for like, oh yeah, we're the New York Times or we're the Fox News, whatever. Let's have an Oregon reporter who yes. just reports on Oregon I stuff, agree. basically. And maybe you could argue you'll still get good perspectives, right? Because maybe if I want to get a right-wing perspective about Oregon, I go to the Fox News. If I want to get a left-wing perspective about it, I go to the New York Times or whatever. But I feel like that will always be more noise and less about actual news and like I'm not saying there's not a place for partisanship, right? I mean, I've written quite a few very conservative op-eds in my day, but I feel like there should be a outlet where people can go and they're like, okay, maybe this is slightly biased to the right or slightly biased to the left, but like, it is mostly just the news at that point. What happened? Why does it matter? Like, what are the impacts? And I just feel like we're continuing to lose that even with some of these publications that have been popping up. It's a good plug to be a sustaining member of the Oregon Public Broadcasting. Join the Oregon Public Broadcasting. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was a paid advertisement. No, <laughs> the, the only thing I would say is that, like, given the polarity that we exist in right now, I think it's impossible. Like, I don't, I can't imagine any news organization that would be seen as a straight down the middle, just given how sharp everyone's opinions are. Because, like, there's a broad segment of people, probably in Portland, that think the New York Times is like trash and far too you know, has far too much deference to a lot of conservative positions, right? And like, probably a lot of people don't, but it's just, it's so much a matter of perspective. And it, I, I just don't know like that anyone yeah, that could ever true. be yeah. the referee of what is the perfect down the middle, like, I don't know. It's because yeah, so well, right. the New York Times always gets in trouble for like, Brett Stevens will publish some sort of op-ed or Ross Douth that will. Yeah. The, I literally see on Twitter, it's like, cancel the New York I'm Times. Unsubscribing. This yeah, conservative but, voice, like can't stand. <laughs> <laughs> but those are opinion so, pieces. So yes. like, that's what you expect. Yeah. But even like people used to be like Maggie Haberman. She's just an access journalist. She's like, she's a sycophant for Trump because she just wants that this access. True. And, yeah. and so like, what, I don't know. But but yet well, many people on the conservative side think that is the mouthpiece of the Democratic Party. And I, I don't think either of those are true. I was thinking just now we were, <laughs> Titus might laugh at this, but in last week's issue of The Liftoff, where we do like Titus and I are both like trying to contribute to a newsletter on Oregon politics that's like relevant to bo both sides. Titus used the word gun control and I changed it to gun safety. And it's like, depending, like <laughs> to me, gun control is loaded and is inflammatory. And to him, gun safety is totally biased. And it's like what, the New York Times, OPB, everybody has to make a choice about what you're gonna label the thing we all know right. what we're talking about. But language is just so loaded that, you know, even talking about something in an unbiased way becomes biased based on the words you choose, which is it's reflective of where we are. Exhausting. And I will just say I use gun control because gun safety feels like it is the, the new thing that like is being slapped down to tamp down and like make things more anodyne. And gun control feels like what I grew up thinking of that debate as. So I don't know if that's the right call or not. That's just conservative I, reporter <laughs> Dirk Van. <laughs> left wing Twitter is about to riot right now. <laughs> okay. So we, we are uh, actually past time for the first half of the show. So oh, wow. we, okay. we're going to transition to we also like, we want to talk meta journalism, but we also know that you're reporting literally every day on the most pressing political issues happening in Oregon. 
obviously in um, one of our most recent episodes, we had Reagan Canopon, who had a very specific viewpoint on redistricting and, you know, the partisan motivations and potential impacts. You reported, I want to say dozens of pieces on redistricting throughout <laughs> this winding road of the census was laid. And so everything got yeah. combined. And depending on the hour of the day, it was like, oh my God, the legislature can't do it. The Republicans are walking out. Holy cow, they're showing up. The committee's changed. Like, it was just a wild ride. Well, um, and it's not done, by the way. Right, right. So it could it, like, <laughs> I th- what is it? February is the deadline. So we still could have like four months of. I mean, I've sat through 15 hours of court hearings already this week on this stuff. And it's just anyway. Wow. Let's for a second, put aside the fact that we don't actually know what the maps will look like. Let's assume that the legislatively approved maps or something very close to them move forward. What do you see as the implications for the future of Oregon um, and Oregon politics, not just based on the maps, but based on the process that yielded the maps? Obviously, there, as we heard mm. from Reagan, there are some pretty severely damaged relationships based on what happened. But then there's also the maps and we've got these congressional districts with a new seat and right. all that. So I'm curious, like broadly from like a high level, what do you see as the implications of this redistricting experience that we just lived through? So legislative maps, right? As you heard from Reagan, if people didn't listen, I think what he communicated is is virtually what I've heard from Republicans, which is they feel like that was a decently squared deal. I mean, there are a few districts they really, really take strenuous issue with, but by and large, I think they felt like there was at least some fairness there. And yet that map probably, I mean, and demographics shift all the time and certainly they shift over a decade, right? But like probably cements them in the minority for the next 10 years, right? Like, and who knows how things change, but it just, that's how it feels to me. Maybe someone that's looked deeper into the numbers is saying, you know, Dirk's an idiot. I I may, and maybe that's, you know, we are a blue state. Many people would say we're more purple than we get credit for, but maybe that is just the reality of where we are, that it is a Republican minority. So I think that that is the likely future. Now, whether or not that means super minority and Democrats having three fifths in one or both chambers, I don't know that I see anything in the the numbers that suggest that's necessarily the case. And certainly Republicans think they can have a good showing next year, right? Even in the legislature. And real, um, real quickly, the reason super minority matters is- Well, it used to matter- And revenue? No, it's not walkout proof. It used to matter because of revenue. Tax bills need to pass by a three-fifths supermajority. It's a yeah. two-thirds, a two-thirds supermajority is for quorum. Okay. So that, and I don't know that anyone's really talking about the D's getting that under these maps, at least not in the near term. And so without shifting to congressional maps, like just the dynamics is really important, right? The dynamics are really important because probably many listeners know that there was a deal going into redistricting where the House Speaker, Tina Kotek, granted parity to Republicans on the committee. The, the assumption, I think, for a lot of people was that meant Republican, like that meant the D's were going to have to come to the table with something potentially, or at least they would have to work in good faith. And that process got blown up for many reasons we could talk about and Kotek pulled back on the deal. So I don't know what kind of ire that is going to have going forward. My sense is it is not going to be good to the extent that Tina Kotek is still wielding the gavel in the house. Right. And that won't be happening for much longer because she's running for governor. So we know that we have a a short session next February. She will, we are told be behind the dais. That could be a really, really difficult discussion. 
we know that some of her top lieutenants agreed with her decision and could be the type of people that are next in line for speaker. So how long does the acrimony stand? Our relationships, which are so strained between Christine Drazen, the minority leader, and, and Tina Kotek, repairable under some new leadership. Like it's very tenuous going forward, I think. And I'm rambling. So I, no, I don't no. know, help me. My, I'm sure Titus has some things too, but real quickly, what I have wondered about is... So we, we've talked a lot about like national polarization and like these national forces that are pulling our society apart. And then there's things like redistricting where sure national politics was part of it, but really those were people who could or couldn't communicate with each other. I like, I don't know if you could say that you, you can't directly at least point to national political polarization as the reason why those relationships frayed. But that being said, I think that the environment that the legislators, the legislature more broadly is operating under where you've got a consti- your constituencies are more divided. That's right. Um, feeds it. To what d- extent do you think that the national trends in terms of political polarization matter moving forward? Like, do you think that is a very real thing and that that's driving walkouts, for example, yeah. and all these other things? Absolutely. And I, I think that lawmakers that have participated in this would tell you that, right? Yes. So like they, you know, Herman Bertschiger, the, the former Senate minority leader, led a couple walkouts. And, and what he was saying, right or wrong, I don't know if this is him trying to pass blame, but he would say our constituencies demand that like we have constituencies that are more polarized than ever on both sides, right? More left and more right. And they are demanding certain things. And so if you want to have, I mean, it's some of the same type of stuff that's happening in Congress, right? People as a whole are getting more polarized, I believe. And certainly we are hearing that from lawmakers, at least those in like districts that lean heavily one way or another where that matters. So they are feeling more torn. And I don't think it's a coincidence that since 2019, we've had four or five walkouts, right? And now we're reading bills by computer in the House and Senate. (laughs) And, and, you know, part of that is... Part of that is certainly a leadership style. And Christine Drazen is a far different leader of House Republicans than Carl Wilson was before her. And she has made plain that she refuses to be walked on by the Dems, but she also has very, very few things she can do to not be walked on. And so it's just a very messy dynamic. Now that could be a leadership style, but it probably also has partial root in what people are hearing from their constituencies and constituencies getting further apart. I mean, that's my read on it. It's the Lynn Findlay situation, the Senator Findlay situation where like him showing up to vote no on a gun bill was insufficiently conservative to a group of constituents. Now that didn't actually make it in my read on it. And Fred Gerard, by the way, almost got like there was a recall Mm -hmm. on him. Who was like, right. Both of these gentlemen are very, very conservative senators politically, but like the base is basically saying it's not enough to vote. No, you need to shut everything down. And that was, you know, just to be fair, uh, I think a subsection of the base that was, that was the, the really hard and heavy gun rights groups that were doing that. So, and neither, and neither made the ballot, right? Like both evaporated. Nor got anywhere close as far as I can tell. So I I don't know if that was a Republican groundswell. I don't think that at all. Agreed. Agreed. Titus. Yeah. and, And Dirk, I also want to talk a little bit about the congressional map, not just the ledge map. So, uh, when was this? This honestly may have been two years ago. I was talking to Ben on the phone once. We were talking about redistricting because, of course, we're political nerds. And I know this was a couple of years ago because I was still living in D.C. And I told Ben, I said, if I was the Dems, what I would do to get the maps through it, because we, we had both thought basically we we're going to get another seat. I would make a swing district that encompassed all of Bend. And that district will probably be plus one, maybe plus two, plus three R. But as time moves on, it will probably go into the D category, not safety, but like 
you know, lean D at least. This was also before coronavirus, where I know that the number of people who moved to Bend, particularly from very liberal areas, also dramatically, I mean, not dramatically, you know, dramatically for Bend increased the population. Yeah. I'm sort of curious because you're, you know, you're talking to these lawmakers, you're obviously really plugged into this issue. Do you think that that was kind of the reasoning behind this? Because I look at, for example, let's take a look at Illinois. Illinois, I think, was slated to have like 16 Democratic seats and four Republican seats. And they basically just went to their legislature. <laughs> like, it's not liberal enough. So now there's going to be 17 Democratic seats and like three Republican seats or something. Is that like true? Is like, that real? That's real. Yeah, it's it, it, it like, I mean, I think even the New York Times called it like blatant gerrymandered. They got like an F score from the Princeton, you know, redistricting institute or whatever. Like, it is just very blatant gerrymandering what's happened uh, in Illinois. Uh, and I think Oregon, Oregon on, t- did too as well, by the way, but. Uh, oh yeah, well, I, I definitely think it was gerrymandered. I think it could have been a lot worse than it actually is now. And I mean, we'll see what the courts do, but was that sort of the decision-making or, you know, I, I'm curious of like, what you were hearing from people on the congressional map in particular. Well, is, so is your question whether or not they built Bend in as this like little secret that's going to give us- <laughs> Yes, uh, yeah. uh, was, there, was there literally like the dark <laughs> and true Alex Titus strategy? Uh, because this is very bad if I get, maybe, maybe Ben passes on to, you know, Speaker Kotek from me directly. <laughs> yes, so I- That would uh, indict me in this endeavor <laughs> um, badly, but I kind of care. Like, what were you hearing about like how the maps were made? Like, yeah. there's a, so, like- like DeFazio, I know, was pissed. Schrader was pissed from the fastest. Like, we have right. a super interesting redistricting here on the congressional side. So, yeah, like, really super. interested in like what you were hearing, how things okay. are playing out. This is like probably the single most partisan and political thing I've ever covered. And it's just, it's amazing. And, and so, like, I don't know that I ever got a fully square explanation from anyone on why the maps are drawn. Both hmm. sides, like, it's just it's amazing to me. Both sides are moralizing so heavily about fair maps and whatnot. And just, you know, just coincidentally, their best, fairest map uh, is pretty favorable to their side. It's just an amazing <laughs> coincidence, right? Like, I think- Who, who could have foreseen this? You know, I, you know the, the Ben thing is fascinating, right? Because it is like probably the, the single most controversial piece of that congressional map that Bend, you know, now I guess it's the fifth like spanning the Cascade Mountains going to Portland and like for the first time ever Bend is connected to the Portland region. Um, I don't think it's any, like, I don't think it's this time bomb. Like everyone is expecting Bend to go bluer. It's blue right now. So like people see that probably as a very, very naked play for a a bluer district. Right now, the fifth as drawn, as far as we can tell, is a pretty uh, swingy district, especially if Schrader elects not to run for re-election and there's not the power of incumbency. Mm, Like that could be a super interesting race in a, in a year that is expected to favor Republicans. But um, yeah, I mean, I am fascinated by the notion. And then, so, so I don't know, like I have not just to my failing, I would say, like I've certainly heard a lot of theories and, and I've talked to a lot of people who believe they know the thinking and it gets really convoluted and like very right. conspiratorial. Right. <laughs> I, nothing I've heard is the type of thing I'm willing to put forward as fact on this, on this podcast. And, and like the people you talk to will, and like that did it, will just say, no, we are trying, you know, there's just, redistricting is so tough because there are a trillion reasons you could draw a line. Yes. And that's why even the most blatant gerrymander often has, and I'm not saying that like, I definitely think that these maps have some biases for sure. And I think a lot of the metrics you look at would suggest that though, 
it's not only only for the Dems in every case. But anyway, the most gerrymandered map, you could still moralize and say, no, we are taking care of, like, there's just a trillion ways to describe these things. And that's what's going to make it so tough with this court case to try to prove intent, to try to prove that Tina Kotek yes. got on the phone with Peter DeFazio yeah. and said, I'm giving you this district and we're going to do this. And guess what? We're blowing up the deal for <laughs> you, Congressman <laughs> Like, right? Like... Yeah, well, it's funny because you talk about the conspiracies and I've literally, at least on the Republican side, I haven't, I mean, the only Democrat I've really talked about this has been, I've heard everything from like, yeah, like, it's just smart. This is smart marketing to be like, no, like, look, we have these swingy districts. And then I've heard the totally other side that was like, no, like Speaker Pelosi literally called Kotech <laughs> and was like, this is Listen. what's going to happen. I was like, I don't think that one happened. But <laughs> like, I mean, the Republicans have said, like heavily suggested that there was a hard lean on the Democrats to hold the line on the map. But it is true that they did give some ground at the end. Like, I didn't yeah. expect it to happen. I mean, that, that map is a different map than the one they put forward at first. It is less biased. It still could well leave to a 5-1 split, though. As I mentioned, I've been sitting through 15 hours of court hearings on it this week. And like, there's four different political scientists who've taken the stand and offered various, various <laughs> like, stances on what is likely to happen or what might not happen. Yeah, well, I mean, one thing too, and then that I'll let you transition is like, what I think people are overlooking is if I'm Speaker Kotek, I'm running for governor. Okay, maybe there's pressure from National Democrats or Eric Holder's group, whatever. I'm sure those phone calls probably did happen. Who knows what was said, but like, I'm running for governor in a blue state and I need to win a primary. So like, here's a pretty good notch on my belt to like deliver us some wins and make everybody happy with me. Like no one's just kind of given that basic observation, which I like, to me, that probably seems like the most compelling case of what happened, but I mean, who knows, but it, well, I just wanted to add that. There is a fervor, I, I would say that I've, I've seen among Dems, right? And you guys talked about this in a for, uh, former episode, but like, the Republicans are, lead a lot of legislatures and are and are tweaking a lot of maps to their to yes. their advantage. And so Dems really think it's time for them to play that same brand of hardball, which I think many of them think they were too cowardly or like play nicey to do. And so when people see Kotech just like breaking the deal, potentially shattering good vibes in the the state house to do it, like people see that as like, yes, like Dems are actually playing hardball. I mean, that certainly was a an undercurrent I was seeing on Twitter. I, I would agree. I think the unspoken thing from Democratic voters or supporters is like, nobody loves gerrymandering. People who care about small D democracy don't love gerrymandering. And I actually looking at Oregon's maps versus like, for example, Illinois maps, I don't think they're, you can say they're in the same zip code of gerrymandering. But unilateral disarmament, where all the Democrats moved to independent redistricting and we try to do things without partisan influence while Texas and North Carolina and Florida and whatever are drawing their maps, leads to a deeply unfair and inequitable outcome across the country. And so like, I'm, I'm not sure that that was part of the legislative consideration, but I know that's how like voters feel. But and to Alex's point, that's a selling point too. Like maybe, I mean, multiple things can be true, right? Like there could be that actual sentiment and it's also like i'm this democratic champion who i don't yeah. know no that no I, I, and i'm not suggesting that that is definitively her strategy i am speculating quite a bit but just chatting about it yeah that's a you mentioned like you you didn't feel comfortable bringing forward theories on this podcast and we have a very low standard of what meets our our threshold for this podcast so you know they're out there yeah. um so our, our last category kind of broad question here is um we're heading into the 2022 elections and it's already wild. Oh, man. <laughs> we, oh yeah. We, by so, one person's count, I was just talking to, they're saying 
up to 15 people turning over just in the House Democratic Caucus, um, mm-hmm. which is wow. which is less than 40 because of people running for other offices or not returning or whatever. That trend is, I think, true across caucuses, across chambers, looking at definitely a new speaker. You're looking at likely a new Senate president, although we don't know. Uh, we don't know. He could have many more years of Senate presidency and uh, Senate President Courtney. But if that happens, you're also probably looking at like maybe shifts in leadership at other levels yeah, down. New budget chairs, but probably. Yep, exactly. And then you've also, of course, got a new governor, but it's not just a regular governor's election. You've got not traditional, but the candidates who we all expected in the Speaker of the House, the state treasurer, potentially the attorney general on the Democratic side. Now we've got celebrity New York Times columnist who had a Instagram video from Jennifer Garner who tagged him on Twitter, uh, on Instagram. I missed this. Now I got to look it up. (laughs) Yeah. Jennifer Garner did an Instagram story and Nick Kristoff retweeted or whatever on Instagram, posted it on his. And then you've got Betsy Johnson, who is a fascinating figure in Oregon politics. I would probably say objectively the most interesting figure in Oregon politics. (laughs) Fascinating, hilarious, powerful it was funny. I labeled her as a moderate Democrat and got yelled at because they're like, no, she's a conservative Democrat. You know, she like she voted, she votes against gun stuff. She votes against environmental stuff, et cetera, et cetera. She's running as an independent. Then on the Republican side, strangely, in a state where Republicans can never win, everybody wants to run this time. There's like 15 people who have filed for this office. Yeah, I would. Everyone, though, out of a out of a strange like. Sure. Sure. Okay. Yes, but get your, sorry. To get so your, so all that as like broad context of like, we're heading into what I would, I will editorialize and say perhaps the most transformational Oregon election in at least decades. A, do you agree with that analysis? Do you see the massive shifts that are going to basically determine what the decision-making landscape looks like? And B, what are you in particular watching as like important or big sort of pivot points that could impact what the state looks like? Your preamble is just stealing my fire because you're like <laughs> laying everything out. But no, I so like I don't know that I've analyzed legislative trends that deeply. Like I, I didn't know that it was 15 D's turning over. Like who knows what that does to to that caucus? If it's true, it's a caucus that's gone uh, ever more leftward and has lost some of its more moderate members recently. And so if that trend continues, like that'll be super interesting. It will likely inform who the next speaker is. Um, but no, I mean, leadership in the, in the house and Senate, super, super interesting. Both the people that are at the top of those chambers are the longest to ever do it. You know, um, Kotek has really solidified power in her, in her chamber. And so like, that's just going to be huge dynamic shifts. And, and then, like I said, budget chairs, like are likely to turn over, um, I mean, really just right now, all eyes have to be on the governor's race. Like right. it is, it is insanely, insanely interesting and, and not like, for so many reasons, right? And we'll know even more on Tuesday when we know who wins in Virginia and like, what is the actual undercurrent Mm -hmm. that's happening? If that happens, right? I think it's pretty likely we see um, what I would term as a potentially more compelling Republican candidate come into the race because I really think the R's think that Betsy gives them a shot. Like, I think think the R's believe that Betsy breaks in their favor, that this could be like an opportunity to shoot the curl, if you will. I don't know what that, but you know what I mean? Like, like to <laughs> yeah. get, take this opportunity, like she can potentially, I know they believe that she can take enough votes from the Dems to make the math work if they get the right candidate. And wait, so wait, like- is, is that really what you've been hearing from some R's? I, yeah. I, I just, I've heard the exact opposite. Like I did this little section for the liftoff of like how R's are looking at the governor's race. And this one uh, senior Republican campaign official said, 
her jumping in as an independent, they thought was the nightmare scenario. I've, and literally I, like two days later, she jumped in. So that is what <laughs> so that is what the Democrats have told me. They believe it breaks, they believe it's- So a, she's it, just everyone's nightmare, basically. They, no, 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 the Democrats believe, no, the Dem, well, Democrats believe, I, I think the Democrats are concerned. They don't, I don't yes. know that anyone knows exactly what it is, but I, I think there are people that definitely think it hurts the Republicans quite a bit. But I have talked to, uh, like, I talked to folks in Republican campaigns that that think that it presents a, a real opportunity. Um, mm -hmm. I would agree. I, I would agree with that. I think my gut says it helps Democrats more. But I just talked to a Democrat um, who I would say is very intelligent on these issues, who says that if you look at partisan voting behavior, Republicans, especially in the post-Trump era, are much less likely to split ticket vote. Um, so you combine that with the fact that Betsy Johnson is like timber unity and like if I'm a Republican, my chances of beating a Democrat head to head just aren't very good in Oregon. So if you throw something that's a curveball that at least presides, presents an, a potential, like I think that at least probably gives them an avenue that they didn't have before. Um, and I don't pretend to know, like, you know, I mean, who uh, it's, it's so, so interesting. Most people I would say, I mean, most people I've talked to, and again, like they are partisans and they're party people don't think um, Senator Johnson is going to, to stand a chance. They think that it's just too, it's too hard to siphon away people who are used to checking the RD box. Um, but I think there's no question that she will have the money to run uh, uh, a notable campaign and that she is, she can be a compelling <laughs> figure in terms of speaking. Um, so I, I just, I'm so fascinated by it. I mean, it's just, it's, it's going to be, wild and i and I, you know i i do want to see how the republican um field shapes up if at all i mean you know i i don't know that they've brought their best yet but not anyone i keep, that's I keep super, hearing yeah yeah i keep hearing rumors i don't know if you're hearing these too i keep oh, hearing yeah. you know drazen tootie smith i keep hearing there's mm -hmm. other sort of bigger figures who are flirting with the idea but i just feel i don't know like i know we're starting earlier than than lately than than historically is true but like these people have already raised half a million dollars in some cases. Like you've got Bud Pierce who can sell fun. Like, I don't, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, Bud and Bridget are raising a lot of money. They're raising a ton of money. And I don't know, like, I don't think. And so is Stan too. Yeah. yeah. It's like the, the, this is like a long discussed trend in Oregon politics, at least like, um, and I think the first example is like Jason Bowe used to be Senate president, was a towering figure in like Salem insider circles ran for statewide office and then lost in a primary to a Lane County commissioner named Bob Straub. Um, and so the problem for people like Christine Drazen, I feel like is, I don't feel like most voters know who she, or I mean, maybe even Tootie Smith has like a larger profile from her County perch, but I feel like we as political insiders see Drazen as like someone who's super smart, strategic, like effective at what she does, but does that translate to a voter base? I don't actually know. I, well, I don't think people know who, I mean, like the, you, less people know who Tina Kotek is than you would think too, right? Just because, I mean, at mm -hmm. least, like, I think when you see polls on name recognition, it's it's far, far lower than might be expected. Um, yeah. Arguably Rosenblum would have the best starting nice. point. I think a lot of people say that, but it's not, she's, you know, there's a lot of people in this race at this point and it doesn't yeah. seem like she's, hastening to get in so i i don't know it will it will be fascinating to track we are a little over time so we apologize okay. for uh for going over that um, okay. but our our last question um that we like to close out with is first to say thank you um but then also if people want to 
read some of your reporting. A lot of the things we discussed, you've already written long form pieces about. So A, if they want to get in touch with you or follow your work, what's the best way to do it? And what's the best way to read the stuff that you write? Oh, and also, by the way, OPB has a uh, its own politics podcast, OPB Politics go. Now, that people can check out. If people are listening to this and want like more politics nerdery, like I think you guys do an awesome job and dive deep, but we are there for you every week. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm at, I'm Dirk. I'm at opb.org. We have a three-person politics team at this point, and um, yeah, we do a lot of this stuff. So people should check it out. And if anyone know, wants to email me, dvanderhart at opb.org. Do you know your Twitter handle offhand? Yeah, it's Dirkwez, D-I-R-Q-U-E-Z. There you go. Um, it's an right, old one. Now you can get all the angry comments from this episode. <laughs> Are you guys getting a lot of angry comments on these? Not no, a ton. no, no, no. Not a ton. We get occasionally, there's some people who, like early in the early days, there's still people who are like you... And they've said this to me, and I think Titus gets it too. Like, you let your guest off the hook when they said something crazy. And it's like, well, if we spent the whole episode disagreeing on literally everything, it's not very interesting. Um, I'm personally grateful you guys have let me off the hook. For almost <laughs> <laughs> you are easy to let off the hook because as a journalist, you're not uh, you're not sticking yourself out there too far. Although I'm sure I'm sure you, someone will find something that they will disagree Always. with you on. <laughs> Always. Um, but with that, thank you everybody for listening. Thanks, Dirk, for joining. And uh, don't forget to subscribe to our pod and go subscribe to OPV Politics now too. There's uh, plenty of room for fish in the sea in the Oregon uh, political podcast world. Uh, but thanks everyone. We'll see you next week. <laughs>